And so now as, as we gather on this uh, Christmas Sunday, we remember what we're all here for. We're here to worship a God who entered our world as a helpless infant born to redeem humanity through a sinless life, death, and resurrection. And so rather than limiting our focus to Jesus on a holiday, we understand that he deserves our worship as Lord and Savior consistently, constantly, every day, every moment of every day. We're not merely seeking to keep Christ in Christmas, but we're understanding that his presence transcends seasons. And so if you're there in Luke chapter two, would you all join me stand as we honor the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Luke chapter two will begin in verse 21. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 2, Luke writes, and, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. And he said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads, we do so this morning with awe and wonder and gratitude because today we gather We gather to celebrate the birth, the miraculous birth of your son. We recognize the mystery to the incarnation, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. In this time of year, Lord, it's full of secular traditions that many of us unknowingly cling to. I pray this morning that our presence here, our presence in this building is not a check on a list of the things that you're supposed to do, but rather it's the highlight of the holiday. And as we celebrate this birth, we do so in anticipation of your return. You came as a baby in a manger, but you will return as a triumphant king. Help us to live in the light of that truth. Help us to be faithful in spreading the gospel and living out our faith with urgency and passion. Again, in this season of giving and receiving gifts, let us not forget the greatest gift of all, your son, Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sin. And may this be the truth that is the heart of our celebrations. We offer this prayer to you now in the name that stands above every name, the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I don't know how much you've ever thought about the text we just read. If I'm being honest, I've never really expended that much bandwidth on it myself until a couple of years ago. 
In October of 21, a, ve- a very close brother of mine, Kevin Twisdale, many of you know him. Uh, he was the pastor of Ebenezer Church, and I think you guys were there last week. But Kevin had invited me to come preach, and the assignment he gave me was, who is Jesus? And most preachers, any preacher worth his salt can come up with a sermon on who is Jesus pretty easily because you don't have to spend a lot of time in the book to realize that Jesus is all in the book. But for some reason, as I read and I studied and got prepared for that sermon, I kept continuing to come back to this text, the scripture of Simeon's prophecy, and I didn't know why until I really dug into it. This text, you may not realize it, but it is enormous, but we don't ever really spend a lot of time with it. We glaze over it at Christmas time. But as I dug in, they continue to give to me and give to me and give to me so much so that I struggled to preach it in one sermon. Let's lay the foundation real quick before we really get and dig into this text in Luke. Let's let's lay the foundation. Luke's gospel was written by Luke. That's right. Imagine that. Now, Luke was an apostle. He was he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a doctor. He was a physician. He was a historian. He was a ministry partner of Paul's. He was also a Gentile, actually the only Gentile to write any scripture. And his writings, which include his gospel here and also the book of Acts, make up the majority of the New Testament. Now, Paul writes more letters, more epistles, but as far as combined content, Luke writes the majority of the content of the New Testament, and he writes it to one man. So the majority of the New Testament is written by one man to one man. And that's really all we know about Luke. Uh, Paul mentions him a couple of times, but the extent of what we know is what I just said. We don't know an awful lot about the guy he's writing to either. His name is Theophilus. Theophilus is described only as most excellent, which at, in the, at the time could have meant that he was a high-ranking government official. It, it may have meant that he was a man of means in the culture, but we're not 100% certain. But what we do know is Scripture says that Luke was writing to him to confirm the things that Theophilus had been taught about Jesus were true and accurate. So he gives an orderly account to Theophilus about the life and ministry of Jesus. And in greater context, the gospel was also written to the Gentiles to give them also a proper historical account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, in in chapter one of Luke, we're introduced to Zacharias. Zacharias is a faithful and righteous priest at the time of Herod, and his wife is Elizabeth. And we read that she was barren. Zacharias um, continued to serve the Lord faithfully, though his wife could not give birth. She was barren. And one day, as he was performing his duties of being a priest, he was visited by an angel in the temple. The angel told him that Elizabeth would bear a son, and they were to name that son John. The angel also told him that the son was not going to be just any man. He would be the forerunner to the Messiah. He was going to prepare a people for the Lord. But Zacharias had doubts. Elizabeth couldn't have kids. You know, they tried over and over and over again. They were kind of advanced in age. She was barren. And because he had those doubts, the angel closed Zacharias' mouth during the entire pregnancy of Elizabeth. And in her sixth month of pregnancy, the angel also visited her cousin, Mary. We read that Mary was a virgin, engaged to be married to Joseph. Joseph was in the line and lineage of David which is a significant fact that we don't have time to talk about. But uh, anyway, the angel told Mary that she was going to get pregnant and she was going to also have a son. But that son would not be Joseph's son. The son Mary would get pregnant with and give birth to would be the son of the Most High. Mary would carry and give birth to the Messiah. And God would give him the throne of his father, David, and his kingdom would have no end. We see Mary then visits Elizabeth. Eventually, Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist. 
At that point, Zacharias gets his voice back. He prophesies regarding his, uh, his son's ministry. He says that John would be the one that would prepare the way for the Messiah. In jumping to uh, chapter 2, we see uh, the birth of Jesus. Jesus' birth happened at the time of the census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus, and Mary and Joseph traveled uh, to Bethlehem, and that's where Mary gives birth to Jesus. Now, at this point, we see the angel again, once again appear, this time to shepherds where he announced the birth of Jesus. And then at that point, the shepherds then go find Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the manger, just as the angel had told them. And Mary and Joseph uh, told Mary and Joseph what the angel had just said to them about Jesus. Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that brings us to our text, finally. Verse 21. So after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, keeping with the Jewish law, took him to the temple to be circumcised. And, and the text says that before they did, his name was called Jesus, just as the angel had instructed. And that's really the first thing I want to spend time with this morning. Let's explore a couple of things. I want you to see a couple of things is that Jesus was the name that Mary was instructed to give the child. Angel further told her that the child would be great, that he would be the son of the most high. Now, Matthew chapter 1, we find the account of the angel visiting Joseph. And at this point, Joseph is ready to put Mary away. This woman that he was engaged to, that he knew he had not yet been with, was pregnant. And her story was she was pregnant with God's baby. Now, we'd find that unbelievable today. They found it unbelievable then, I promise you. But then that same angel that appeared to Mary also appears to Joseph. The angel confirmed to Joseph that Mary's story was indeed true. And he tells Joseph not to put Mary away because the son that she is going to be give birth to would not be just any normal man. This child that is coming is going to save his people from their sin. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and I could be wrong, but I'd almost be willing to bet that that statement, which is a miraculous revelation, he will save his people from their sin likely wasn't the thing that had the most impact on Joseph at the moment. I say that because we read later in our text today that, that he and Mary both marvel over the things that they are told about Jesus after he's born. Here's how my brain operates. Why do they marvel so much about the things that they're told about Jesus after he's born? The prophecy that Simeon gives, we just read it. Why do they marvel so much at the things that Simeon is saying about Jesus and who he is going to be when the angel told them both about who the child was going to be before he was born? Jesus will be the son of the most high, occupied the throne of his father, David. His kingdom will have no end. He will save his people from their sin. Those are some pretty significant details to marvel over before he's born. I mean, Mary knew something was happening. She knew something miraculous was going on. She knew she was carrying a child and had not yet been with a man. She was a virgin. I'll explore a possible explanation of the marveling later, but, but quickly, let's look at the name Jesus. Jesus is the greatest name ever uttered. Jesus was the name given to him by God, by the Father himself. And so what it means in the Greek, it's the Greek word lesus, translates in Hebrew to Yehoshua or Joshua. And it literally means Jehovah is salvation. And so the truth that I want us to glean this morning is to finally get started is number one, Jesus is God's salvation. Number two, he is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. The third thing we'll see is, is he is the glory of Israel. And the final thing is that he was appointed for this. 
He was born and he was destined to be the savior of his people. So point number one, Jesus is God's salvation. Looking back at verse 21, Mary and Joseph brought him at eight days old to Jerusalem to have him circumcised, keeping with the law. And in verse 25, we encounter Simeon. Simeon was a man that was devout, he was just, and he was waiting with anticipation for the deliverance of Israel. The text tells us that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is a deeply messianic expectation. And some may use the term comforter, but be careful not to confuse that with parakletos, which is the title given to the Holy Spirit as comforter in John's gospel. In Luke, the consolation of Israel refers to the long-anticipated Messiah. And look, the Jewish people were not merely seeking comfort, but they were seeking and anticipating the arrival of the deliverer who would fulfill the promise that God had made to their forefathers. When Simeon sees Jesus, he doesn't just see a comforter. He sees the fulfillment of a sacred promise, the Messiah that was sent to rescue and restore. Revealed by the Holy Spirit, Simeon knew that he wouldn't see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit as he comes into the temple at the same time that Mary and Joseph arrived. And Simeon, full of hope, full of the Spirit, full of expectation, recognizes that this baby was the culmination of all he had been waiting for. Picture the scene. Think about it. A righteous man filled with the Holy Spirit encounters the baby with his parents. And this is the Son of God that is right in front of him. This is a moment that's beyond mere contact. This is an intimate encounter of two of the three persons of the Trinity. And they're coming together in this very unique revelation. God the Holy Spirit dwelling in Simeon and God the Son, Jesus in the flesh. Simeon takes the baby into his arms and he blesses God saying, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Don't overlook this. This is a remarkable Trinitarian moment. Simeon holding God the Son, influenced by God the Holy Spirit, offering praise to God the Father. My eyes have seen your salvation. He recognizes Jesus as the incarnation of God's deliverance. A deliverance not only prophesied, but it is now tangibly in his arms. How many years has he been waiting for this deliverer to come? He holds this baby in his arms now. This faithful and righteous man has been looking for the Messiah for a very long time. And in this moment, he knows this baby is God's salvation. Remember, that's what his name means. Jehovah is salvation. In the Greek, the word salvation is soteria, which here in Luke 2.30, it's being used as a noun. And it literally means savior. But saving who? Saving what? Well, if we look back at Matthew chapter one, I mentioned it earlier, but quickly, let me show you this. Matthew 121, when the angel appears to Joseph and he tells him not to put Mary away. And then about Jesus, he says to Joseph that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. We just saw Simeon pray that his eyes had seen God's salvation. Salvation, the Greek word soteria, in, used in Luke as a noun, meaning Savior. Matthew one twenty one, the text says Jesus will save. Same root word, it's the Greek word sozo. In Matthew, it's a verb, it's an action. In Luke, it's a noun, it's a person. So it's like saying the pitcher pitches, or a driver drives, or a runner runs. God's salvation is God's Savior, Jesus. In Luke 2.30, Matthew one twenty one, Jesus will save. So the Savior saves. Saves who? He saves his people from their sin. 
So obviously that statement raises a question. Who are his people? Well, if we look back at all the encounters that the angel had with Joseph and Mary, the encounters he had with Zacharias, the encounter he had with the shepherds after Jesus was born, and the encounter here with Simeon, all of these encounters have one familiar element. Things are being prophesied about Jesus, and the people are amazed. They marvel at what's being said. But even with all of the excitement, all of the marveling, we realize that they just didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Simeon, through the Holy Spirit, knew he was on the lookout for the Messiah. But look again at verse 25. He had been looking for the consolation of Israel for all of these years. Then in this glorious Trinitarian moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, he holds the Son, he prays to the Father, and he prophesied, this is God's salvation who his eyes have seen. Verse 31 speaks of a revelation that God had prepared in plain view. A salvation that was laid out before the entire world. This salvation is not something that's hidden or was hidden. It was presented very openly in the scriptures that they had. When we come to verse 32, we see this breathtaking declaration that Simeon makes in the temple in this moment as he's surrounded by Jewish people. He said, this child is a revelation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Take that in for a second. Understand what's being said in this moment, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, not an exclusive light for Israel. Jesus is God's salvation, but Simeon also says that he's the light of revelation to the Gentiles. We don't get the picture that uh, how many people are around as this is taking place. Scripture doesn't expound on that. We're not privy to, to the details of how many people were gathered in the temple witnessing this. It could have just been Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and Simeon, but there could have been 500 people assembled. We just don't know that. But what we can glean is that no matter who may have been present, the words that they were hearing, these things that Simeon spoke were very surprising to whoever this audience was. At this point in time, Jewish people were aware that God was sending a Messiah. They were on the lookout for their Messiah. But what they did not realize was that this Messiah was going to be a savior for the Gentiles too. This wasn't something Jewish people were anticipating. They weren't looking for it, but they should have been. They should have known. They had scripture. Flip to Isaiah 49. Put your finger there and flip to Isaiah 42. We're going to go back and forth. We'll start in 42, but go to 49 and 42. It's Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over your son. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, 6. It is too small a thing that you shall be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah, especially here in Isaiah 49, specifically mentions restoring the preserved ones of Israel. But just like in Isaiah 42, he says, I will also make you a light to the nations. My salvation will reach to the end of the earth. At this point in time in Luke, in the temple, as Simeon is prophesying over this baby, Jews and Gentiles are separated. Not in the sense that they lived apart, they lived among each other, but Gentiles and Jews, or, or Jews considered Gentiles to be outsiders to the covenants. They were outsiders to the promises of God. 
And so you wonder when Jewish people read the scripture, they had this text, they had Isaiah. You wonder when they read these scriptures, what's going through their mind? What must they be thinking? Because God clearly said through the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, would be a light to the nations, not just Jewish people, not just Israel, but to the nations. Now, we knew they expected the coming Messiah. They expected restoration and salvation. They saw it as something for them alone, however. They shouldn't have. It was clearly said, not just in Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 42, it's in other places as well. They were the chosen people of God. The Old Testament was clear, though, that their duty, the duty of Israel, was to be a light to the nations. They either forgot that or they never really understood it. They wanted no association with Gentiles. There were cultural differences. There were religious differences between the two. In some cases, there were a lot of hatred between the two. But over and over and over again, we see that God's salvation was not going to be exclusive to one people group. Flip to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. This is where we see John the Baptist's ministry begin. Verse 3 in Luke 3. And he came into the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will come become straight and the road, rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Flip back to Luke 2, verse 9. This is where the angel appears to the shepherds after Jesus' birth. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy for all people. What does all mean in your Bible? Blake? Phil? All means all. That's right. All tongues, all tribes, all nations, all people groups, Jew and Gentile. God's plan from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, has always been to bring Jew and Gentile together. Now, that's a lot easier for us to understand today, 2,000 years after the fact, than it was for them to try to wrap their minds around at that moment in time in the temple. I'm sure of that. But they did have Old Testament scripture, but what they had was a blurry picture about who Jesus was going to be. It was a shadow pointing towards his coming. They had the prophecies, but they weren't 100% certain on who or what they were looking for. The law had been added to and added to over and over and over again. Scripture had been twisted and contorted. Culture affected their thinking, and sadly, it still does today for us as well. But culture had affected their thinking. The leaders in Rome, they were cruel to the Jewish people. They were very cruel to them. And so the Jews were on the lookout for someone, a Messiah that would come and crush Rome and restore them, a king that would come and would take his throne and improve their earthly lives. That's who they were looking for. There was no way the Savior was also going to be a light to the Gentile, a light to the very Romans who persecuted them. Not a chance. But here's what happened. 
looking for the Messiah they wanted caused them to miss the Savior right in front of them. Time and time and time and time again, we we read that Jesus, the coming Messiah, would bring light to all nations, and they missed it. They missed it. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles, Simeon said. In the context here, light translates as knowledge. Revelation translates as laying bare. So it means that something once covered is now revealed and uncovered. So the Gentiles had, prior to this point, had been cut off. They had no knowledge of God. Their minds had been darkened. They were worshiping false gods. But now Jesus, Simeon says, is going to be the knowledge uncovered. He's going to be the truth that will be revealed to them, which had always been God's plan for Jesus to be their salvation, to be their deliverer, the salvation for all types of people everywhere. God had one plan that included all peoples. Jesus is God's salvation. It's a light of revelation to the Gentiles. See, he's also the glory of Israel. He is the glory of his people, Israel. Obviously, that's the description they were expecting, right? That's what they were looking for. That's something they understood. They were anticipating that. They were looking for the Messiah of Israel. But Simeon separates and makes a distinction between the two. Just like we read in Isaiah 49 and we read in other places in Scripture, and there's a reason that these two groups, both God's people, but they're separately and distinctly mentioned. God could have easily told us that the Gentiles would become part of Israel. But he doesn't. He does not say that. Over and over, the Bible gives us very clear language that though the Gentiles will be among God's people, God distinguishes a separate glory for Israel. But I want you to notice something else. We look at the word glory here. That's what I want to look at for just a second. We look at this word, we think praise and honor. That's what it means, right? That's not wrong. But in this sense, in Simeon's prophecy, there's more to it. Israel, God's chosen people, were waiting for their Messiah. They were waiting for their deliverer, right? We've established that. They've been waiting for years. The Lord's Christ was going to save his people from their sin. And then Simeon says right here that this baby that he's holding in his arms is God's salvation. He's come to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. But then he says he's going to be the glory of your people, Israel. Now focus here for a second. I want you to follow me. This is a very subtle nuance, but it is extremely crucial. The Greek word used for glory is the Greek word doxa, and it translates glory. No big shocker, no big surprise. That's what it means. But thinking deeper, let's think a little bit deeper. And it's okay to do that, by the way. Christianity is a cognitive religion. We can think. Thinking deeper here, we see in the New Testament that doxa is not just about glory. It often refers and reflects God's presence or his reputation. So when Simeon says Jesus is the glory of Israel, it's not just an acknowledgement of an already known fact. It's an acknowledgement of Jesus's role and presence in Israel's story in a much, much different way. Let's also establish for just a second this phrase, the glory of his people, Israel. It's a, it's a, it's a metonymy. A metonymy is a figure of speech uh, where one word is substituted for another word that's closely related. So it's like saying Washington for the government or Wall Street for the financial sector or Hollywood for the film industry. That's that's a metonymy. And here with doxa, that, that's also a metonymy, but it's, it's more direct. 
We tend to think that Simeon saying that Jesus is the salvation of Israel when he says he's the glory of Israel. And he is. Jesus is the glory of Israel. He is the salvation of Israel. But in Luke 2.32, he's saying more than that. In this context, Jesus is not just the salvation of Israel. He is the author of salvation for Israel. That is a very key distinction. It's subtle, but it changes the whole landscape. And it may seem minor to you and me 2,000 years later, but in that temple, this was revolutionary. It shifted the entire dynamic. Because if Jesus were just were the salvation of Israel, then we might think that Israel, all of Israel would be automatically saved. But history and scripture shows us that that's not necessarily the case. Not all of Israel is Israel. Simeon's words imply that through Jesus, salvation is possible for Israel, but it is not a guaranteed birthright. And that's where we get, grapple with that idea that not all of Israel is Israel. Ethnic lineage to Israel does not equate to automatic inclusion in God's salvific plan. And this understanding, Paul later expounds on it in Romans, is very crucial to understand. When Simeon speaks as the, of Jesus as the glory of Israel, it's about more than salvation. It's about Jesus being the active author of a new chapter in Israel's history, a new dispensation, if you will. And this chapter is open to all people through faith, not just lineage. And that changes everything for the Jewish people. It doesn't change everything for God. That's always been his plan. He's only had one plan. God doesn't have a plan B or a plan C. He doesn't have a plan A. It's one plan. Thus saith the Lord. One plan, all peoples. So Jesus is God's salvation. Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He's the glory of his people. And the next point, Jesus was appointed for this. His whole purpose, his whole destiny was to secure a people for himself, a people that God the Father set apart for him before the foundation of the world. So Mary and Joseph being Jesus's parents was no accident. His birth at the manger in Bethlehem was no accident. His trip to the temple to be circumcised the exact date, the exact time, walking in at the exact moment as Simeon, no accident. This prophecy by Simeon, no accident. Verse 33, his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. The angel visited Joseph and Mary separately, right? We, we read that earlier. He visited them separately and, uh, and he told them who Jesus would become. The angel visited the shepherds after Jesus' birth, who then went to Mary and Joseph and reported what the angel told them. And then here, Simeon with Jesus in his arms prophesies about him. And we read that Mary and Joseph are amazed. They marvel at the things being said. Ask yourself why. Honestly, why? I said it earlier. If, if the angel had told them so much about who Jesus was going to be prior to his birth, why do they marvel so much at what Simeon is saying? Could it be that they were amazed to hear that Jesus, their son, the son of their God, this child will be the salvation for the Gentiles too. Could that be their marveling? Are they amazed to hear the proclamations they've already heard verified again? Or is it this? Is it that they are hearing that this child would be a savior for the Gentiles? That Jesus would not be just a Messiah for Israel. And that he actually wouldn't be salvation for all of Israel, but rather the author of salvation for Israel. Could that be what they're marveling over? 
Simeon saw the amazement in their faces, the text says. And then he said, Simeon blessed them and said, Mary, or to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Verse 35, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What we can deduce from these verses is that Jesus was appointed for this time. He was set apart for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. In the Greek, the word sign means something or someone distinguished from others, set apart. The word opposed means refused to have anything to do with. So Jesus was set apart. He was appointed. He was destined to be the salvation and the judgment of many in Israel. And he will be distinguished because there will be those who refuse to have anything to do with him. The Messiah came. The consolation of Israel came. And they missed him. The life Jesus lives was the very life Simeon prophesied as a baby, holding him in his arms at eight days old. Not just his life, but his death too. Verse 35, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Another clear statement that not all of Israel is Israel. Many hearts will be revealed at the end. The religious elite of the day, the Jews, God's people, Israel, they had Jesus' blood on their hands too. That was always God's plan from the very beginning. One plan. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 to 8. You don't have to turn, I'll read it. But 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus Christ is the salvation of God for the people of God who were predestined to be saved by God by the sacrifice of the Son of God, all for the glory of God. Jehovah is salvation. The salvation of all peoples, not just Israel, but all people, Jew and Gentile, all tongues, all tribes, all nations, the Savior of all people. And he was appointed to be that Savior before the world even began. Our text today clearly shows that Jesus Christ is God's salvation. He's a promised salvation a prepared salvation, a perfect salvation, and an appointed salvation. One plan, all peoples. What does that mean for us? What's the implication? Well, with Simeon's prophecy, we find ourselves at at the very heart of God's plan of redemption. It's his one and only plan, right? A plan that embraces all of humanity. And this moment, Simeon prophesying in the temple was not just for those gathered there. It's a moment for all of us, for every generation to follow. This infant held in the arms of this righteous man in this temple is destined to be the hope and the revelation, not just for Jewish people, but for every people group, every culture, every society that the sun touches. This moment was a very early whisper of the Great Commission, a foreshadowing of the day when followers of this Messiah would go into all of the world and make disciples of all nations. So this is a call to us as believers, not merely to acknowledge, but to actively engage in God's one and only plan of salvation. But how do we do it? As modern disciples, how do we mirror and embody God's vision for his kingdom? Well, first, we have to recognize the fullness of our calling. Just like Jesus was sent uh, for all, we are called to reach out to all. 
That means that we step outside of our comfort zones. That means that we step, uh, that, that, that we engage with those who are different from us. That means we intentionally break down barriers that divide us. It calls for an active commitment of stewarding this message that we have been given. Like Simeon, we, are, we too are to be vocal about this message of the Messiah. We are to be living witnesses of the love and grace that we've received. And while our natural instincts point towards societal change and improvement of the world, Scripture confronts us with this reality that hearts must first be transformed by the gospel. Without question, the, the effects of sin have corrupted every corner of this planet. And we mourn that. We mourn the injustice that we see on a daily basis. We mourn the violence that we see. We mourn other fruit of wickedness in individuals and institutions. But the Bible compels us as believers to view the world through a biblical lens, which diagnoses the root cause. And that is reality that sinful human hearts are naturally in rebellion against God. And from that perspective, the need of every individual is repentance and faith in the atoning work of Christ. Jesus himself said, you must be born again. All other pursuits are meaningless if men and women remain dead in their sin. You can feed the hungry. You can clothe the poor. You can protest racial injustice. You can protest at abortion clinics. You can do all of those things, and they are meaningless if people remain dead in their sin. It's focusing on the fruit, the wicked fruit produced by the rotten root. Because until the root is changed, people are going to continue to produce rotten fruit and even more rotten fruit and even more rotten fruit. Our mission is clear. We are ambassadors. We are to plead with the lost to be reconciled with God through repentance and faith, to respond to this offer of salvation in his son. Having received this grace ourselves, we, we, we can't, as people of God, remain silent as people head toward destruction. We've got to warn relatives. We've got to warn strangers. I've told this story before. I don't know if any of you have ever heard me preach before, but I've told this story before. Maybe you've heard it from me or someone else before, but Penn and Teller, you know, the magicians, Penn and Teller, you may have seen this somewhere. I got it somewhere. I don't remember, but uh, he's well-documented atheist and hater of God. But he once said something that I wholeheartedly agree with. And that's that if you are a Christian, if you are a sold out, totally committed believer in God, if you believe in heaven and hell, you fully, without a doubt, believe there is a place of eternal punishment that, that people will go who have no belief in your God and will spend all of eternity there. How much do you have to hate a person not to share that with them? Think about it. People are dying and going to hell every single day, and we call ourselves Christians, yet we remain silent and let them head that way. Would you let someone run into oncoming traffic? No, you wouldn't. You would do something, but this is worse. People are dying and going to hell for all of eternity. Yet we let them. How can you call yourself saved yet have no desire to rescue others? Listen, Outside of your total surrender and commitment to worshiping God, this task surpasses all others. The eternal destinies of human souls hang in the balance. As believers in Jesus, in Jesus and recipients of God's grace, we have a duty to plead with every man, with every woman and every child to embrace the gospel. Only then will societies be transformed. That has to be our priority. All other efforts will prove to be in vain if individuals still reside under the power of sin. So that's what I want to do right now as I wrap this up. I want to plead with you. 
As we contemplate the words of Simeon this morning, our hearts are drawn to the deep and heavy truth of Jesus's birth. Today and, and, and every day, we celebrate not just the birth of a child in Bethlehem, but we celebrate the advent of hope for all of mankind. Jesus, the glory of Israel, also arrived as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. In him, we see God's plan of salvation is to cover all of humanity. This plan, God's one plan, extends to each and every one of us. And I know what it's like to come face to face with myself, with the horrible, perverse, prideful sinner that I was, and then to hear this offer of grace and forgiveness. It's easy to doubt that God would ever desire to save sinners like us. I know, I certainly had those doubts. How could a holy and righteous God ever save a man so engrossed in sin like I was? It seemed incomprehensible to me that there was this God that would simply overlook such deplorable failures that I had in my life. That God could not possibly exist. And you know what? I was right. A God of such limited justice does not exist. My sins were crimes against God. I was a criminal of the highest degree. Because the very high and lofty position of the one whom I sinned against and committed those crimes against, I deserve the death penalty. Yet here's where the gospel transformed despair into hope. The greatest news that you will ever hear is this. God in his infinite mercy chose to enter this broken world. He was born in a humble major to a virgin mother. And then Jesus set out on this 33-year journey, a journey that was marked by a completely unblemished record. He did what no one in this room has done, will ever do, and that was to live a perfect, sinless life. And he looks at you today as he did me over a decade ago, and he offers you terms of peace. He extends to you terms of reconciliation. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus, through this life of perfect obedience and an agonizing death on the cross, he took the punishment of our sins. And as he was on the cross and he was in this agony, right in the middle of it, his, his heart was not thinking about the agony. His heart was not thinking about the beating that he just took or the ridicule that was happening and the mockery that was going on. That's not where his heart was. His heart was set upon you on that cross that day. For all of our sake, he took the punishment that we earned and the punishment that we deserved. He bore the full weight of God's wrath. And when his mission was accomplished, he said, it is finished. And he took his last breath. But the story didn't end there. His death could not hold him. Powerful testament to the deity and the sufficiency of a sacrifice. God raised Jesus from the dead three days later. He was victorious over sin, victorious over death, and victorious over Satan. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he extends this offer of peace and reconciliation to you. The response is clear and unequivocal. Repentance. Turn from your life of sin and turn toward faith in Christ. This Christmas, let's hold close the truth of Jesus' birth, that it was not merely a historical event, but that he came as a light into the world lost in darkness. He revealed the fullness of God. He illuminated the path to salvation, and he extends hope to every corner of this earth. This light that was first seen in the humility of a manger was destined to break forth into every 
nation, inviting everyone to partake in the joy of salvation. Let's be carriers of this light. Let's spread the joy of Christmas and the hope of salvation far and wide. That's our duty. That's our privilege as believers to share in God's one plan for all peoples. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads now as we come before you with hearts full of gratitude. We reflect today on your word and the message of the birth of Jesus. And as we do that, God, I pray that that souls have been stirred by the gravity of your love for us. Lord, in your wisdom, in your wisdom, you orchestrated the, the greatest act of love in the history of the world. You sent your son into this world, not as a conqueror, not as a king in earthly terms, but rather as a humble baby in a manger. And it was in that lowly birth that we see your glory. In that moment, your plan, which you had before the foundation of the world was set into motion, the word became flesh. And so this Christmas, as we consider the life of Christ, we consider his perfect obedience, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection. I pray that our hearts are filled with both joy and also sorrow. Our hearts are filled with joy for, for the gift of salvation that's so freely given, but also sorrow for the immense cost at which it was purchased. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He bore the weight of our crimes. He endured a wrath that was rightfully ours. We deserve that punishment. Father, we confess, especially me right now, I confess that too often we take this gift for granted. We live as this as though that we are somehow obligated or you are somehow obligated to save us. Or, or we live as if the gospel is just a mere footnote in our lives rather than it being the central story that redefines everything about us. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us for for these entitled sinful attitudes. Forgive us for a sinful complacency. And Lord, rewaken a renewed passion in us if we are your children to share your truth with the world. Many of us today are at a crossroads, Lord. And I pray that we would step forward with a commitment and a resolve to be ambassadors of Christ. Give us that courage, Lord, to share your message. And I pray that you would use us, Lord. Use us as instruments of your peace and your grace. Use us to sow seed in all soil. Not just fertile soil. We are called to sow seed in all soil. The results are up to you. So as we go from this place, Lord, let us carry the light of Christ into a dark, dark world that desperately needs him. Lord, take our hands, take our hearts, take our wills, and use them for your glory. May we never tire of proclaiming the good news of our Savior and our Redeemer. And we ask these things now in the name that stands above every other name, the only name under heaven by which man may be saved. We pray now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.